in this time where we are questioning almost everything that we're told by government and big pharma, not knowing if they're trying to harm us or to help us, we need to speak to experts who actually know what they're talking about. And particularly now, as we're dealing with giving these so-called vaccines to children, we want to find out, parents want to know what exactly is going on. So we've got someone to speak with today on this episode of the John Henry Weston Show that is really a super expert on things. Dr. Paul E. Alexander, he's a PhD. He has expertise in teaching of epidemiology, which is clinical epidemiology. It's evidence-based medicine, and also he's in uh, expert in research methodology. He's a former assistant professor at McMaster University in the evidence-based medicine and a former COVID pandemic evidence synthesis advisor to the WHO. And also, uh, and that was in 2020, he was a former senior advisor to COVID pandemic policy in the U.S. government and uh, therefore worked with the Trump administration and Health and Human, Ser Human Services in Washington, D.C. He worked and was appointed in 2008 at the WHO as a regional specialist and epidemiologist in Europe's regional office in Denmark. Also, um, these nations were involved at the time in uh, projects in Russia and Turkey and Ukraine, Poland. He was employed from 2017 to 2019 at the Infectious Diseases Society of America in Virginia. And uh, as the Evidence Th Synthesis Meta-Analysis Systematic Review Guidance Development Lead Trainer. So Dr. Alexander worked for the government of Canada as well as an epidemiologist for 12 years, was appointed as the Canadian infield epidemiologist uh, from 2002 to 2004 as part of an international CIDA-funded Health Canada executive, pro executive project. So this is an expert of experts, and he's here to talk to us today on vaccines and children. He is actually currently an independent academic scientist and COVID-19 consultant researcher. He's also informally providing support uh, to some members of the U.S. Congress. Stay tuned for this one. Dr. Paul Alexander, welcome to the program and thank you for joining us. Thank you. I'm very humble and it's a pleasure to be here, sir. Thank you. Let's begin as we always do at the sign of the cross. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. So, Dr. Alexander, one of the things that is, is going on right now, obviously, is the rollout of these vaccines to children in many nations. We're already getting reports of children being injured by the vaccines, and I'm sure that's going to roll out. But with your extensive background, I wanted to ask you, really for the sake of parents, what's your take on whether parents should allow their children to get these vaccines? That's, I think that's the question of the moment and probably the most important question right now, societally. Thanks very much for posing it. Um, I think this becomes a risk management decision for parents. And um, like everything in life, we have to approach things from looking at it from the point of view, what, what are the benefits versus what are the downsides or risks? And when you look at the science today and the data and the evidence, overall, 
these vaccines bring no, no benefit to children because they bring their statistical zero risk to the table and, and only skews towards harms. So there's all risk, no benefit. So as a risk management decision, you could only conclude a decision away from the vaccines. And I'll tell you why. We knew about 18 months now, from about the end of April, beginning of May, because we were getting data in 2020 that showed stably across the world the children brought near zero risk to the table in terms of becoming infected in the first place. Children didn't spread to other children. The data also showed us statistical zero risk where children spread to adults. The spread is often adult to child from a home cluster. There's no spread child to child. And we have the data to show that zero. Um, children don't take it home, like how they drive seasonal influenza home. Um, children out of FOCA have seasonal influenza in terms of taking that home to your parents and grandparents. Children don't get severely ill from COVID and children don't die. Statistical zero. We'd like to say zero risk, but we say statistical zero risk, near zero. And many of the instances where the UK, Canada, United States have reported a uh, child may have died from COVID, the authorities often do not give us the information so that we could clarify whether death was causal or incidental. And we have that right now in the United States where Dr. Marty McCary out of Johns Hopkins are in a back and forth with CDC openly, a very serious debate where he has requested that they provide the information to show whether the deaths in the United States, where the CDC said some children may have died from COVID, whether they were causal or incidental. He has went further with his research team and looked at the instances. And he's actually reported that in all of the children, there are no instances where any of the children who the CDC said died of COVID was a wild child. And I'm not saying it in a flippant, easy manner. I'm a parent too. And the death of a child is the most catastrophic event in your life. And parents can never recover. So we are not talking about a simple issue here, but, but, but we have to be clear. We are talking about the data and the evidence because serious policy is being made here where we, are, where we are bringing our policy to affect 28 million children in America, let's say, vaccinate them. So if you're giving us bogus or false or misleading information, we need to understand the science. We really need to, and these people talk about the science. They're not, they have never, this task force, United States administration one, and now this administration, they don't follow the science. Because if they were to follow the science, we would not be in the situation that we are, even with the vaccines. So that was the epidemiology I just laid out in terms of the risk. And, and, and I'll even drill it down a little bit further. We have a seminal study that came out of, uh, there was one that came out, out of Sweden last year by Professor Ludvigsson. And they looked at all of the children in Sweden from ages zero to 16, and they followed them throughout this pandemic. And they showed them no lockdowns, no masks, no, nothing. Schools open as normally. They found of 1.95 million, so 2 million sweet kids, all of them, they found no instances of death, none. They even found that the teachers 
the teachers in terms of infection or whether they got ill, et cetera, um, had levels that were even better than the general population or similar profession. In other words, we've made the argument always, and we still I still make it today, that the school remains the safest place for a teacher. The median age of teacher, teachers in America is 41 or 42. Teachers are generally young, and I imagine same in Canada. Young, healthy people. If you have medical conditions or you are concerned about your health, of course, you should exercise the hybrid model or the remote learning model, but you should not close schools. You should not close schools because teachers want the schools closed when the teachers are the most healthiest. The school environment is the safest for a child. The, the public needs to understand, and, and I'm talking about the United States, but I'm also talking about Canada. I'm talking about other countries too. Children in the United States is an example. You see, the news covered over the real catastrophic harms of school closures. When the CDC and the NIH knew, Dr. Fauci knew, Dr. Walensky, then Dr. Redfield knew that children had near zero risk. By closing schools, we damaged and suffered children, some of them irreparably, and, and a lot of them are poor children. Children get, for the first time, their eyes tested in school. They get their hearings tested for the first time in school, particularly poor kids. There are many, many children in the United States, millions. I know because I saw the data. They don't eat breakfast. They don't, the parents, they can't. They don't have the means. They don't even eat dinner. Children get their only meal in the school feeding program in school. When we close schools for over a year, the general cafe latte laptop elite class didn't understand that while you could have shifted to remote learning and pods and tutors for your child, because you are supervisor or manager, there were millions of Americans who were hardworking people who could not their children starve. I want to say it because I know the data. They have millions of children went for days with no food in America because you close schools and nobody thought about it. It's exactly one of the places where uh, we have not addressed the case for children from uh, underprivileged homes where they're just they're just poor. They're without uh, what they normally need and what they get at school. Um, one of the things that I guess the government pushes or health officials push as a rationale, because I think the news is out there that most kids don't get it. This is almost uh, a non-issue for kids. But the big thing for them has been, you know, oh, but the kids are going to transmit it. They're going to affect their parents and their grandparents. They're going to kill everybody. The kids sort of need to do it for the rest of the community. First of all, that's just sickening all by itself. But secondly, can you speak to that rationale? Issues of things around physical abuse of children and sexual abuse, and it's a very serious issue, come to the attention of the school first, often, by closing schools, hundreds of thousands of children who were abused. We had cases in America, I know because I was there, coming up from the States, where parents, husband and wife, were presenting to the emergency room 
with a child in the arm limb, telling the emergency room doctor that we think we might have killed our child, can you help us? And the child has broken limbs and they explain to the doctors, we've been laid off over a year, we have no income, we've been violently abusing each other now and we've been beating our children and we think we harmed this child. It's a very serious issue. What we did people with these lockdowns and school closures, we suffered people. And when that statement you just made, the reality is there's no data, none, none. I challenge any official. I challenge Howard New. I challenge Theresa Tam on the federal level in Canada. I challenge Davila in Toronto. I challenge Christine Elliott, Doug Ford. Anyone bring to me the science because there's no data I have seen. There's no data the scientists that we have seen to, 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 to back up that statement that is being put out there. Children don't transmit it. That is a bogus, misleading statement to parents to scare them into vaccinating children. There's no science to show this, none. And the reality about it is that we know, we know that from an epidemiological point of view, we have this study out of the French Alps by Danis et al. I just recall this one. Um, they looked at a child who was positive, tested positive, um, and that child moved on to three different schools. So some perfect example. The media will not discuss this study that I'm talking about, nor any politician or bureaucrat or technocrat, nor Dr. Fauci. They pretend it doesn't exist. Dr. Tam will not mention this study I'm talking about. That child moved around to three schools, cross-contaminated 120 teachers and students. They found not one instance of secondary transmission from that positive infected child. It began to paint a very clear picture to us. Clear, the children are not super spreaders and children do not spread it, particularly to other children. And here's the key, to really understand what I'm saying, that Tam and Nu and Fauci and these people, they don't, they don't, they don't even read the science. And, and that's what is very concerning to a scientist like me. They talk about science and stuff, but they seem to not get the science. They, they, maybe they can't understand the science or the data that they're reading, or they can't, they just blind it because of their biases and prejudices. They just, they just don't want to believe that the science is showing whatever they are advocating for is just. Absurd and illogical. Now, I wanted to go be beyond this. So I looked at the, the data and I did some research to say, well, you know, the epidemiology is showing us that children don't spread it to take it home. Good, that's bulletproof. However, why? So when I looked at the science, I found there was this seminal research published in Journal of Medical, Medical, American Medical Association by Patel, Patel et al. And what they did was they did a very ingenious piece of science. They decided they're going to measure the ACE2 receptor levels across the body, and particularly in the nostril, nasopharyngeal passage, where virus, respiratory virus lines for the first time, including SARS-CoV-2. When you get exposed and someone passes something to you, it lands in the nostrils here and hangs around. Hangs around in the upper respiratory tract for about three to four days before, if there's no capacity to put it down, then it migrates further deeper into the lung. Now, what they found was startling and helped give us partly the reason why children are spread, are spared 
the ACE2 receptor is that molecule that sits on the outer surface of epithelial cells in the respiratory tract. Epithelial means cells that line the outer surface. And the endothelial cells of the vasculature, endothelial cells are the cells that line the inner lining of your blood vessels, arteries, veins, capillaries. The ACE2 receptor is very important physiologically as a human being to support life. It's very important in fluid balance and blood pressure control. That's a key role of that receptor. It moves salt across the membranes. So it shifts, it shifts fluid and salt so that it regulates your blood pressure, fluid balance properly. That's the role of the ACE2. It's a key role. Turns out that the SARS-CoV-2 coronaviruses that have the spike on the ball of the virus, that virus, I'm not going into whether it's intentional, man-made, this is just an evolutionary adaptation, whatever. The virus, the coronavirus uses that spike to bind. It, it interacts with the ACE2. Some conformational changes take place. Virus enters cells, genetic material, hijacks your metabolic machinery of your cells to produce copies of itself. We know that, that's bulletproof. But turns out that that ACE2 receptor is expressed or exists at a far less level in the nasopharyngeal nostrils of children, young children. And it, it gets a higher level as you get older, age graduated. That began to explain why children do not get infected readily in the first place or even go on to get severely ill. It's because they lack molecular apparatus to allow it. But the news media wouldn't discuss this. Dr. Tam or Dr. New wouldn't discuss this because it would make sense to parents. I also found research by Wang et al. showed that children's blood, they had collected blood pre-COVID and they looked at the blood and found B cell activity in the blood. Long-term long-term memory, immunological memory, due to prior exposure to common colds. Remember, children experience three to four to five common colds a year, including adults. When we get exposed to a common cold, most likely that's a coronavirus common cold. And our bodies build immunity to those, our immune system. And we have found remarkably that the immune response to common colds coronaviruses, which are very benign, no problem. They provide us a level of protection against SARS-CoV-2. And again, the media wouldn't cover it. And Dr. Nu and Dr. Tam wouldn't tell the public this. The children are almost bulletproof. Children have a level of protection they come with and that they have that they can withstand SARS. And that is why SARS-CoV-2, COVID, has remained not a childhood disease because children are protected biologically and immunologically, molecularly. If you now introduce the vaccine, which is a synthetic, you, you're causing the body to make the spike, which is the pathogenic that causes the problem. That's the, that's the business end of the virus. Now you're introducing the synthetic spike into the bloodstream. You are bypassing here, going straight to the blood you are liable to cause thousands of children to die. Why I can say it so forcefully? Because the vaccine developers did not study this vaccine in children properly or even long-term. 
to rule out and exclude the harm that I'm seeing. I am saying, if we vaccinate children with these vaccines, we do not have the data that excludes harms. Remember, when you run the trial, you cannot take a 12 to 15 year trial, that's the duration, and boil it down into three months and tell me that this is safe. Because what the vaccine developers do on the FDA shockingly has allowed them to get away with is this. They undersize the trial and they undersize it deliberately so they don't detect the harms. And I'll tell the public it this way in a simple way as I can. Let us say like myocarditis, our data suggests that the risk of myocarditis is about one in 6,000. If you ran a trial as they did, they said, we ran a study of 2,200 children. Okay. And we ran it for two months. Well, right there is a flag because you cannot run a study for two months. It should take 15 years of surveillance follow-up. That's the length of a study. So right there, it should be stopped. That is garbage. But let's go further and listen to what they're trying to tell us. And when we ran this study for two months in these 2,200 children, we found uh, no deaths, we found no risk, no, no, no safety signals to say that the vaccine is unsafe. Well, I will ask the vaccine developer this and I'll explain to the parents what they should say is, how could you find myocarditis risk in that 2,200 sample that you just reported that you took to the FDA to get approval, when we know the risk is one in 6,000. You cannot find it because the sample size is 2,200. You needed at least 6,000 people, children, to find one case at least. So right there shows you how they undersize the study deliberately. They do not run to sample so they could find the safety signals. Besides the fact they don't even run it to the proper duration. So there are so many flaws, and I'm a research methodologist, so I'm talking about the methodology here. The methodology of these studies have been so poor and, and bogus. They should have never been, not even for emergency use authorization. They don't even have the science to back it up. So everything here is wrong. And all I'm saying is parents need to understand. If your child has a near zero risk, near zero, of serious sequelae from COVID. If you are looking around you, don't take my word, look at the UK, look at Israel, look at Seychelles, Gibraltar, Iceland, United States, the barn stable outbreak. 75% of the persons, they were double vaccinated. The vaccine doesn't work against Delta. So even if you vaccinated children with these vaccines, it offers no protection. It cannot work. That is why everyone today who's been vaccinated is becoming infected because the vaccine is geared towards the Wuhan strain of March 2020. We're in November of 2021, and the variant is Delta. Your immune response cannot see the Delta. Cannot. That is why there's immune escape and breakthrough infection. It will not move. Well, Dr. Alexander, thank you so much for that. I think a lot of parents will will benefit from this. And um, gosh, uh, really need to fight for our kids. And uh, you're doing that and have done that in a great way. Thank you so very much. Thank and God bless you. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you.
And God bless all of you. We'll see you next time. We have been warning everyone who would listen and attempting to build up alternative platforms to continue to reach you. We have established ourselves on all sorts of platforms I'm going to explain in a minute, but the most important thing to do is come direct to lifesitenews.com because there we will always be. But we've also established ourselves on platforms like Parler and MeWe, and our videos can be found on Rumble as well. We would love to see each of you on those platforms too, as they are not censoring or suppressing the truth that we are sharing every single day. More than these alternative social media platforms, we highly encourage you to subscribe to our email newsletter. We have really built up a large list of loyal readers on our email marketing platform, and we have prepared several backup plans for, well, I want to say if, but it's really when, we are removed from our current platform as well. Additionally, I really encourage you, as I said before, to make it a regular habit to go directly to lifesitenews.com. Make it your homepage. While all of these different platforms are an excellent way to curate your news, going directly to our website means that you will never encounter any censorship or sudden loss of LifeSite News reporting. Here's the thing. We will never stop sharing the truth. We founded this organization with the mission to be the life, family, and culture source for men and women who seek to know the truth. We have established a track record of honest reports, and this will never stop, even with censorship happening around the globe. Again, I'm encouraging you to join us on Parler, MeWe, Rumble, and on our email list. You can find all the direct links in the description of this video. May God bless you and keep you, and we are so thankful that you've chosen to follow and support LifeSite News. I'm John Henry Weston, co-founder and editor-in-chief of LifeSite News.